Hey everyone, welcome to Murder She Spoke, a podcast um, about murder she wrote with Angela Lansbury. Um, today we are starting off at the very beginning. This is the first episode, and we're going to start with episode one of Murder She Wrote, called "The Murder of Sherlock Holmes, Part One." All right, so. Season 1, Episode 1, right off the bat, amazing intro, uh, credits, super, like, hometown vibe feel. Classic, old-fashioned writer, typewriter vibes, awesome. Honestly, great intro. The only My only complaint is, um, it's a bit long. Uh, it's a pretty long intro, it's about... 44 seconds, um, watch, like, going into the show for the first time, like, that's a good intro, like, for a first-time watcher on the first episode, perfect. I don't know in further, in future episodes, I don't know if the intro is any shorter, um, if it's not, no big deal, um, just a bit long, I mean, it, when it aired on TV, that was probably a good intro for then. Um, but now in the t- in the era of wanting to get things done fast and streaming and all that, TV intros just slow us all down. Um, but it's 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 pretty funny. Like the intro is really lighthearted, nothing serious. A lot of like stereotypical like murder mystery tropes in the intro. Okay. The opening shot of the first episode. Holy crap. So good. It's like playing off of like the stereotypical like murder mystery. Like a pretty girl in a gorgeous gaudy haunted mansion sort of deal. But when she's coming down the stairs you can tell like her eyes are watery. And honestly that is some great acting slash usage of eye drops whatever it is it's uh it's genuine okay so the lady in the beginning of the show she's in a like i said a mansion it's dark out it's windy the doors are blowing open she's scared she's holding a candle um and she's very very panicky and she says she's yelling out roger roger you know whatever um and then she says roger if this is your idea of some sick joke what is it with people always saying that like it's a lot in 80s and 90s television shows when someone's scared someone's being haunted or there's a murder like they're always like This better not be some sick joke. But, like, what did they think? That, like, their husband is, like, creeping up on them, like, or, like, trying to scare them in, like, a really creepy way? Like, most of these people don't seem like the pranking sort. Like, if it was, like, today and some, like, 20-year-old, like, I don't know, Logan Paul, 
if I lived with Logan Paul, I, I would probably suspect that I was being pranked. Um, but I wouldn't say, is this some sort of sick joke? Like, I don't know. It's just a saying that's, uh, that phrase is used all the time. Honestly, like, in that scenario, I wouldn't be like, is this some kind of sick joke? I'd be like, bitch, are you trying to fuck with me? Okay, so she goes past the window. She says, this is some kind of sick joke. And she opens the door, first of all. <laughs> this is so unrealistic because if there was banging and noise in my house, I sure as hell would lock my bedroom door and not move. And this lady's, like, seeking out <laughs> the noise. And she, ha she like, has the foresight to be afraid. Yet she goes to confront what she's freaking out about. And it's a guy in a mask, like an executioner's mask, with an axe. But it looks so fake. <laughs> Which it is, because... After they pan out, you find out that it is a, it's a scene. So they pan out and show that it's a act one of a play. And then they pan out to see our wonderful star, Jessica Fletcher, in the audience with two other old ladies. Now, they set off... Um, they go pretty fast with assumptions set in this episode. The director, stereotypical director, trying to cut down the show because there's too much whatever, um, turns, didn't remember that he asked the three old ladies to be there. They're the refreshment committee, cookies and whatnot. Um, so they're, Jessica Fletcher isn't established as a singular character in this moment. The first time you see her, she's with two other old ladies. They're brushed off as just stereotypical cookie ladies, but then, like, two seconds later, she just... She... She blows their minds. And that is a very common theme with this show that I've... I've I mean, I've seen the show before, but I'm trying to watch it... Um, through fresh eyes, um, but it's a very common theme with her, um, and I think that's based off of age, and that's the whole point of the show, because old people, and especially old women, are thought to be helpless, um, old-fashioned, not open-minded, um, not worth being the strong heroine in in a movie or a TV show of any kind. And honestly, that's why I like this show, because no one expects the little old lady to be quick, to be sharp, to be the smartest person in the room, um, to fight. I mean, which is a really stupid um, stereotype to begin with, that old ladies you know, their passive, you know, make quilts, stuff like that. Like, it's definitely breaking through ageism for sure. Um, okay, so they walk out, and the director runs back 
after them, suddenly interested in who they are because she immediately says, oh, the uncle's the killer. Well, he's like, wait, what? Of course, he, um, he's so confused about why she knew the uncle was the killer. And she is very aware that he is impressed with her. But she plays it off so well. Like, she's very clever. She always knows what she's doing. She always knows that she's right, typically. Um, so him being all confused, and she is the coolest. She plays it off and just, you know, introduces herself. And then the other two ladies with her, and they're all like, these are the cookie ladies, blah, blah, blah. And they're like so, she plays it so innocent, like, She's not cocky whatsoever. She, like, plays into her stereotype. After uh, the pleasantries, he asks her how she knew it was the uncle, and she explains that there are very simple telltale signs that um, the uncle did it like that. He knew about the phone call, which he wouldn't have known unless he was the killer, and that he changed his tie. And honestly, like, In reality, she isn't being very clever. Like, she's watching the show. And when you, like, I personally have written books and plays. And when you are in it so deep, it's hard to see, like, loopholes and loose ends. Because you already know what's going to happen. And you know what happens along the way. And you know how people get there. So, like, it's important... To have a fresh set of eyes because, honestly, writers and actors know the whole story and they could, like, they could easily look past the actual context. But when, especially because it, it, the play hadn't opened yet, um, someone from the outside with fresh eyes never read the play. And it said it is a murder mystery. They're obviously looking for murdery sort of clues and to lead to who the actual murderer is. So those fresh eyes, it wouldn't have been hard to point at, pick out like, oh, he knew about the phone call. That's so weird because he wasn't there unless he was the killer or the tie thing. Unless the tie was very, very like, if it was like a bright color or dark color, and then they switch the complete shade or something like that. That might have been a more um, difficult thing to notice, especially when you're watching the play for the first time. Not many people would focus on that sort of stuff. She clearly has, like, a knack for that sort of stuff. Um, but again, just having a fresh set of eyes could pick out something that... something like that pretty easily. Not that I'm shirking her credit. She's really great. So after that, the director gets angry, of course, and goes and yells at the writer. Stereotypical director, get that writer! Uh, bullshit. You know, crap. Um, <laughs> but the funny thing is, um, right after that, it goes into more credits. <laughs> we needed more credits. We had 44 seconds of credits in the beginning. And now we're starting with even more credits. Honestly, at 
429 in the video. Well, around 424 more credits started. It's 429 in the video right here. Still credits. Same stuff being shown. She's running, biking through Cabot Cove. I guess they're trying to establish what type of lifestyle she has. Um, even more typing. This set of credits, I believe, is what the, um, the guest stars are listed under. Like, the first set of credits... Um, that was like, you know, the intro, Jessica, Fletcher, Angel, and Lansbury sort of deal. Like, the, the norm, the star. And then I think right in, like, the director or the writer or whatever. Um, and this set of credits, I believe it's all the guest stars and whatnot. It's an interesting, uh, interesting way of doing things. Okay, so, they're replaying the credits over again. Like, I'm not at the beginning, but, like, they're showing the same scenes over again after that whole ordeal and then, like, after the story started. Okay, so, five minutes in, they are now just starting the guest star listing. Like, they did the whole intro, then a few seconds of story, then, like, a whole nother minute... Of intro showing the same scenes plus more of Jessica's lifestyle, her in every freaking part of Cabot, Cabot Cove, her walking into Cabot Cove with the Cabot Cove um, sign saying it's population, her walking upstairs at um, at the marina, her hanging out with school kids, which doesn't make any sense because she's a retired school teacher. So, but they're trying to establish for some reason in the intro, like, that she's close with school kids. With, like, I mean, obviously that's actually explained within the story and dialogue. So I don't know why the intro is trying to do, use visuals to show all this stuff when all piled together looks insane. Okay, at 5.22... The credits are still going. Intro is still going. Jessica Fletcher is wearing a sweatsuit and awkwardly running through a field of what looks like wheat um, on the cliff near the, the ocean. <laughs> the more I watch this, the more freaking ridiculous it is. Okay, it gets good around like 5.42. She's running, she's uh, coming back from her pretty awkward, but not slow jog. And she re she reaches her mailbox, pulls out the mail, and as she's walking up the front, like, I don't know what part of the house she's walking up to because, like, it looks like the front sidewalk, but then the phone starts ringing, and it has to be, it must be a freaking loud phone. Because she can hear it very clearly. And then she fucking takes off. She books her ass into the house. But like instead of going straight. Which I assume the walkway goes straight into her house. She like turns. Like she runs straight. And then like goes around. Which uh, like I feel like to the back door. Yeah she um. It's definitely the back door. 
she runs like a boss, like Olympic style, like swinging her arms running just to get the telephone. She must have gone for this run and locked the front door and left the back door open. That must be a thing she does. Because she bolted through the back door and immediately grabbed the telephone like life or death, like she's waiting for an important call. We learned from the phone call that it is Grady Fletcher. We don't know who that is yet, but I'll, uh, I'll spoil it. It is her nephew. No, nephew. Yeah, I think. Um, now they don't show him right away. They show a shot of New York City. Um, and it's a very shaky shot. Um, and then they go back to Jessica. They do not show Grady yet. And she reveals that it's 6 in the fucking morning. 6 a.m. All those credits, 6 a.m. She's running, which makes me wonder why she was getting the mail at 6 a.m. Because the mail wouldn't. Oh, maybe she was. Oh, never mind. She was grabbing her paper. That makes more sense. But, man, that's maybe why she thought it was an emergency, because someone was calling her that early. Alright, starting to make sense. Okay, so... I finally show her nephew, Brady. He's in New York, being a typical New York accountant stuff. Um, he, he steals her book, reads it, then gives it to a publisher, didn't ask her, assumes that she'll be thrilled because she is, I don't know, it just assumes, but she doesn't think her work's good. She thinks, she's like, oh, that's so ridiculous, and he alludes to the fact that she doesn't have any dreams of her own, apparently. Um, but I love how they jump from her getting her book publish like him submitting the book they jump all the way to her being kind of famous it being a bestseller because the in-between stuff is pointless so i like how the story does really begin when she's already becoming famous for her writing and when she's doing another athletic activity she's biking with a bunch of shit on the back of her bike um she drives past the bookstore sees that um, her picture, huge picture in the window, says bestseller, number eight bestseller. And then as she's standing there, the guy pulls out the number eight and puts number two bestseller. And she rolls her eyes so damn hard. It is hilarious. She does it a lot in this show, and it's so good, though. Okay, so she talks. It jumps back to her in our kitchen talking to Grady on the phone again. And he's in his really weird office um, for some fish company that sells fish. And, like, the colors of the office are bright orange and teal, and it is insane. Um, so he reveals that she's going to be on the Today Show and Donahue and whatever. And then her two... Um, old lady friends from earlier are in her kitchen 
and they're all excited. And then they're like, oh, you have to get a makeover. And they, like, both of them, like, spin around her, like, a stereotypical, like, Cinderella montage. Um, They're like, you have to get rid of the tweet. And they're all, like, grabbing different parts of her her clothes. And it's so weird. (laughs) But it's funny. Um, And the next part. (laughs) Next thing you know, she's in a beauty salon. Or no, she's getting her clothes picked out and she's in a beauty salon. And she's not sure about it, but she goes along until the the delivery man comes in, who is very good looking. Kind of looks like Christopher Maloney. Um, and he sees the picture of what they're going to do her hair like. And then he looks at her and shakes and says, like, don't do it. And she she's like fed up at that point. <laughs> Like, I like how that's how she decides not to do it. Uh, Then it jumps to the train station where Jessica is meeting Grady and um, a lady, which I'm not sure who she is yet. Her name is Kitty Donovan. Um, So, yeah. Um... She comments about just maybe Jessica missed the train. Like, it is such an undertone of confused, helpless old lady bullshit. Um, but Grady isn't even having it. He didn't even get what she was doing. He's just like, no, she's very punctual. She's great. She'll be here. He had no doubt in his mind that she didn't miss the train. You know what's really sad? I never noticed. I never noticed any of this before, but. She uh, says she hopes she looks okay. She never intended to look like a barber pole. And honestly, like, at first I thought that was a haircut remark. But no, it meant she's not skinny. And she's kind of apologizing for it. But also, like, not. Because she knows that she's not skinny. So she's just, like, deal with it. Which And he tells her she looks great. But that's so... Like, she's very, um... I don't know. It seems like she's very human in these beginning episodes. So she goes in, meets the publisher. He's too busy for her. He's a good-looking older man. Um, she... I can't tell if she... I got two different vibes on the situation. She's introducing herself, and then she tells him that... Um, apples help his complexion. It looks gray. That's a very, like, Sherlockian thing to do, like, but also a very, like, old lady thing to do. And I think it's a great mix of both. Um, so her experiences on television are less than exciting. Um, makes the deal seem more less glamorous she gets sick from cigarette smoke or whatnot um they reveal who the book the killer is in the book on tv they are just trying to make what she created into something that it isn't or criticizing what it is um so she gets sick 
She's in the hotel or wherever. Has a towel around her shoulders. Coughing. Her feet are in a bucket. No, not a bucket. A bowl. Which I assume is a bowl of hot water. Which is a thing old people did back in the day. Which no one does now. But I guess it's a thing. Um. Alright. Um. And then. It jumps to. Her being outside the hotel. Signing autographs. And then her receiving a subpoena. For plagiarism. And then she's just having an all around terrible time. She ends up back to the train station. And the producer. Or the uh, publisher. The hot old guy. Um, he meets her at the train and tries to get her to stay. So, <laughs> the old guy brings her roses at the train station. And within two seconds, he's able to convince her to stay the weekend with him. Along with Grady and, um, what's her name, Kit? Um, Kitty. Which I guess isn't that weird because th th that old guy is Kitty's boss and they've known him for a while. And, and Grady and Kitty, I think, are dating. So um, I guess it's not that weird. It's not like a random guy on the street is like, hey, don't leave. Stay with me for the weekend. Um, I don't know how rich people are weird like that. Um, so he's able to completely change her mood about hating New York and everything that she just experienced and entices her with the, the idea that she will meet real good friends of his. Well, somehow she ends up in a convertible with him in the next scene. Um, and he explains that the lady who gave her the subpoena does that with pretty much every one of their authors. So she's relieved. Um, but then she's like, oh, just another, like, crazy old lady. Um, and it's an interesting dynamic because she is aware of the, her stereotypes against her. And she's driving with a man her age. And he's kind of understands that, too. They were still calling each other uh, by their last names, and they did the stereotypical, well, me, my students call me Mrs. Fletcher. Though, actually, he didn't even call her Mrs. Fletcher. He called her J.B. Fletcher, which is her pen name. Um, and then she said Mr. Giles, and he's like, Mr. Giles is the stuffed suit that I left back in New York. That's... Uh, <laughs> That's such a... Every freaking show. Like, they do that all the time. And, I, like, honestly, that's never happened to me. Like, there's never been an instance where I called someone misses something. And they're like, that's... That's what they call... You know, like, you know what I mean. So... I've heard occasionally, like, men who used to be hippies who are now in their, like, late 60s, when they call them Mr. Whatever, they'll say, that's my dad's name. You you know, I'm not like him. I'm a hippie, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> um, that's the only occasion that I've heard someone say something like that in person. 
Um, honestly, in that scenario, I think it would be if someone called me Miss Wellman, um, I'd just be like, oh, you can call me Maria. I wouldn't be like, Miss Wellman, that's what my doctor calls me. <laughs> it's so weird. Okay. Um, so they drive up to... Oh, and he alludes to that. She could be a, um, a devious sort of influence on him. Like, they're clearly into each other. It's very obvious. Like, at least he is. She's playing it real cool, like she always does. Here, the, after they, uh, they drive into the mansion, the estate, um, it cuts to an old man who looks pretty close to the guy who played the skipper on Gilligan's Island. Um, he's skeet shooting and his wife, the stereotypical wealthy man's wife, drinking and he asks if she wants to shoot and she says, you know, if I'm going to make a fool out of myself, I'll do something, you know, I'll, I'd rather do it with something I enjoy or something like that. <laughs> so many stereotypes so fast. Um, I'm not saying I don't like it. It's so great. But also, like, this is the first episode. And I've seen a lot of the episodes. So, um, it, it doesn't, it's not so cliche, but this is just establishing everything. And after the, um, the rich guy's wife, the guy shooting, freaking, she crosses in front of him his wife, and starts to walk up this insanely huge hill to the, um, to the house, which I know damn well. Like, behind them is a pool, and, like, a path and everything. Like, I honestly think there's, like, a normal walkway to, like, the inside, but she's, like, walking towards this huge hill with, like, nothing on it except bright green grass. And she's walking in the direction in which he is shooting. And I find that really weird. Two seconds later, she is up at the house. <laughs> Just as Jessica and um, this guy, what's his name? Um... Oh, Preston Giles. Perfect name. Just as Jessica and Preston Giles are walking, they walk shoulder to shoulder through the door, and they're wearing complementary colors, both, like, oatmeal tan colors, and he's wearing an Argyle print sweater, and she has, like, squares, not, like, like a polka dots, but squares, and they're big, and they're very complementary outfits. Okay, so they're standing on the porch, veranda, whatever it may be, um, and the lady, um, she mentions that her husband invited this thin, slinky woman to the party or whatever they're doing, and he assures her that it wasn't his idea, um, damn it, I already forgot his name, Preston. Preston is like, oh, it wasn't my idea, but, you know. And then she's like, oh, well, 
I assume you're just being a polite host and said you would put her up here anyway. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but along with the skeet shooting, which is very loud, there is a sonic boom that ripples across the sky. And um, Preston comments about how they live near an airport, which I'm assuming this is important later. Okay, so honestly, Jessica's so fucking great. Like, the, the lady um, he's talking to is like, what are you coming as tonight? And she's like, what are you talking about? And then, like, instead of explaining it to her, the um, Preston is like, she hasn't decided yet and, like, you know, moves her along. And then he tells, which is totally, like, right there he could have been like, oh, I forgot to tell you, we're having a costume party, you're supposed to dress up as your favorite fictional character. Um, but no, he, like, did it in a really creepy, weird way. Um, and then he kind of, like, I felt like it was kind of mocking where she was, like, she rolled her eyes at him and she's, like, and he's, like, I'm sorry I didn't give you any notice. And then he's, like, I know, you'll have nothing to wear. Like, kind of, like, making fun of women who say, like, what am I, I'll have, I have nothing to wear. And then, but then Jessica was, like, I guess I'll have to go as Lady Godiva, which, if you don't understand the reference, um, Lady Godiva is naked. Um, and you don't get to see his reaction, which is unfortunate. The camera's, like, at the back of his head. And then, like, he turns around as she's walking away, and she gives him the cheesiest, stupidest, like, wink, like, like, you know, like, I could be Lady Godiva. <laughs> like the stupidest shit. Um, obviously she's joking, and she knows like she's being insane because, like, I don't know. It's just it's fucking hilarious. Okay, story. <laughs> it jumps to the party, and the butler answers the door, and it's like three random guests come in. I like how it jumps to certain scenes that are like not important to the story. Um. The greatest part is, they're very, very colorful characters. Like, the first lady that walks in, um, is very short, short white hair, um, Justice Peter Pan, very bold. It seems like they're all already, like, plastered. And then the guy, the last guy to come in in that scene, he's wearing a full-on rooster costume like not not like a mascot costume but like straight up he looks like a real giant rooster the feathers are fucking real like his tail everything is exactly proportioned like a rooster but in his size it's so great the jb and uh why can't i remember his name preston they are going at it hard. Um, he is dressed as... Um, they haven't said yet. <laughs> um, but he's wearing a, a set of tails, like sort of like Mr. Darcy's set of tails with a lot of glitter. But it's like... It's not like... 
like colorful glitter it's like silver so he looks like very masculine in the glitter which is weird um and she comes down the stairs as the fairy godmother from cinderella that she happened to cobble together with some other woman this gorgeous gown and 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 wand and everything and they like flirt they are flirting hard the party goes pretty fast um a guy dressed as Sherlock Holmes, which the name of the episode is named after. Um, he walks up to a really young lady, probably in her early 20s, very good-looking blonde, and slips his hand up her cape. And they clearly, she doesn't react negatively, really. So, like, it seems like they're probably having an affair of some kind. Um, actually... I wonder if I have a hard time uh, telling people's faces apart. Like, if, like, I don't know. It's weird. Like, if I look at someone in shows, if there are several people that look exactly the same, not even exactly the same, like, similar, like a bunch of, if there are three old guys around the same height-ish gray hair, I will not be able to tell them apart. Um, okay, Sherlock Holmes is the guy who is skeet shooting. I didn't recognize him, but now that I go back, um, I rewound, um, his nose, I, I was able to tell because of his nose, um, but yeah, so, the skeet shooter is cheating on his wife, and that's what she was talking about when she said, he invited that thin little thing to the party. That's the one he put his hand on. And when he did that, his wife, I believe it was his wife that was standing behind them and saw it. Okay. 20 minutes and 30 seconds in. It starts to get spooky. Grady and the girl Kitty um, are out on the porch, somewhere on some side part of the house. Um, it's an estate, it's a mansion, it's big. So, it's hard to tell, like, where they are exactly. But from where they are, he is able to see the room he's staying in. I don't even know how he was able to determine that. Probably when he was in his room, he looked out the window and saw where he was located. That's the only way I can think. That I would be so confused. So many rooms. Um, but he sees someone looking in his room with a flashlight. And honestly, like, what they show... They show a light, like, flickering around. And it honestly looks like it's from the outside. So, like, if I saw that, I'd just assume someone was outside. Like, from the party. But... He, he, I mean, he's right. Someone is in his room with a flashlight. Um, so I would have missed that clue com completely if it is a clue or whatever. They must not have... They must have been a little bit... I don't know how he saw the window because... I guess they were, like, across from the house. Um, because it looked like they were on the porch of the house they were at. But it looks like they're maybe on the porch of, like, a pool house or something. Um, because when he's, 
they were ex across the yard from his room. And then to get into his room, he ran around and then into the house. So, like, they're probably, like, I don't know. I can't explain it. Um, he ran into the house and ran straight up the stairs. And Jessica watched and noticed him, noticed him run up the stairs. But, like, honestly, why? I mean, first of all. Why were they looking in his room with a flashlight? It was a huge-ass party. He could have just turned the... Whoever it was could have just turned the light on, rummaged around. No one probably would have known the difference. I mean, Grady would have seen the silhouette of him in the window anyway. But, like, also, it's a party, so it probably wouldn't have been that suspicious. Like, I don't know. It's weird. Okay. He went in, guns a blazing, into this room, um, Grady. He ran into the room and immediately assumed this guy's up to no good. And went running and, uh, oh, he, he threw a running punch. Like, he didn't, he didn't even question it. First of all, this is not Grady's house. He's staying as a guest there. And it's his kind of girlfriend's boss's house. So, one... He's never stayed there before. Two, it's his room for the night. Honestly, wouldn't have been weird if someone was randomly in there. Because one, there are probably several people that live in that house normally. So, he goes in and, like, he assumes it's this guy's up to no good. It's an old man, silver hair, very well put together, wearing a tuxedo. Or no, not a tuxedo, a suit. And he, all he's doing is opening the balcony door. Grady runs in, punches him. They, He freaking attacks him, and they fight. And this, like, okay, so this they fight, and the man then goes running out the door like he's guilty. So, I mean, at that point, I get it. But, like, also... <laughs> if someone came in and attacked me, that I'd run to... But, um, it was just unprovoked. So ridiculous. If, I mean, if he caught him, like, stealing, but, like, he just ran into the room and threw punches. Um, then we, then, then Jessica follows them, him upstairs. And, like, a boss somehow uses her wand to trip the guy, which I can't see happening because of how fast he was running and the wand... I mean, even if the wand was made out of, like, a crowbar, like, she could, she, the angle she had it, like, he would have just hit his leg and kept running. But, like, somehow she tripped him. Maybe she had her foot out also. Um, so they bring him into a room, interrogation style, with a bunch of them, and sit him down and... Um, he explains he's a private investigator. So, he won't tell, the, um, the private investigator won't tell why he is there. And who he's working for. And Jessica and Preston are standing in front of him together as if they're the male and female figureheads of the household, which makes no sense. She's never been there before, but they're standing together as if they're an item. 
um, which I like very much. He's very dapper, love his outfit. And then as he, Preston goes to call the police, um, the, the PI um, is like, well, if you do call the police and it's in the paper, um, the finger will be pointed at every one of your guests. They're all high, powerful people. All of them have skeletons in their closets, obviously. Um, I mean, just the one guy alone is cheating on his wife, like, in front of everyone. Um, so, he hangs up the phone. So they decide to escort him out. Well, they have Grady escort him out. And then as he's leaving, he's like, It was a great honor to meet you, Mrs. Fletcher. Like, how he met her was she tripped his ass and he face-planted into the floor. <laughs> um, and then he's like, You have a rare gift for murder. And honestly, that is the creepiest fucking thing ever. And his face looks creepy. And Jessica was like, Ha ha ha, thanks, I think. Um, it was fucking great. Even more creepily, as he is leaving, um, he turns towards a Lady Liberty Scales of Justice statue, and then is like, um, to Preston, he's like, I couldn't figure out who you were dressed as, which I couldn't either. I had no idea who he was dressed up as. Um, and he reveals that he guesses correctly that he is one of the characters from the Count of Monte Cristo, um, which is interesting. Oh, my goodness. The guy's cute shooting. The guy dressed as Sherlock Holmes. Oh, my gosh. It's Captain. The Captain who freaking... That's Grady's boss. This is Grady's boss. The guy. The guy. I'm such an idiot. Well, I guess I shouldn't have known that. Um, it's so funny. So, he's like spouting off about how great his fish company is. Um, um, earlier when he put his hand up that girl's cape, the lady who saw him do that, it wasn't his wife. It was some random lady with, like, a really high collar. I honestly have no idea who it is. Um, because in this this next part, his wife is super drunk and comes over. And the lady with the collar is sitting right next to them. And um, his wife is like, hey, I want to go home. And he's like, get some coffee. I'm staying or whatever. Do what you want. Okay, new development. The girl with the collar is named Ashley. She saw... She... Ashley is the girl. The wafy, thin girl that she... That he invited to stay over that his wife mentioned earlier. The girl he put his hands on is a totally different girl. I thought that was the girl that his wife knew about. That's a totally different girl. And the girl he usually is cheating on his wife with, Ashley was the one who caught him putting his arms on the other girl. So, drama. Grady out here looking like Carrie Eloise from Princess Bride. Um, 
So Jessica sees um, the captain's wife being all drunk and whatnot and trying to leave and she tries to get her to stay. And then Grady runs into the door and um, I don't know why he ran in. It was like he just fought someone off. Um, so he comes in and Jessica urges him to drive her home. Um, but she like fights him and locks him to the ground. And then drives off like a maniac. And Jessica comes running out trying to help Grady. Alright, the next scene is Jessica uh, walks into a room where the um, there's a guy that's mounting his own play off off Broadway and it's costing him two hundred fifty thousand like at the minimum. He's playing the piano, drunkenly talking about it. Um and this guy dressed up as like a freaking Humpty Dumpty. Egg nonsense. He's like, oh my gosh, the tickets are thirty dollars. I'm too poor for that. Blah blah blah. Really obnoxious. Um here we find out that everyone knows about Ashley and the captain, but the guy at the piano starts singing about like um a man who like ruins a woman because like essentially her scenario, like she knows the captain the captain's cheating on his wife with her, but then he's also cheating on her with this blonde lady that no one knows of but she's dressed as Silver at Riding Hood. Um, so she gets mad, blah, blah, blah. In her anger, she spills clear liquid onto her dress, which I guess is made out of silk or something. I don't understand the whole concept of, I spilled on myself, oh no, I have to get out like right away. Um, she spilled on a dress, didn't care, but Jessica immediately grabs her and whisks her away to get the stain out. Okay, so she whisks this lady that she doesn't know, I'm assuming, um, into the kitchen, which is a very large, nice kitchen, where, um, damn it, what's his name? Preston. <laughs> Preston, in all of his gorgeous glory, is on the phone. And she is bold as hell. She runs into the kitchen that's not hers. Of this guy she just met. Who's in the kitchen too. Goes to the refrigerator and pulls out a bunch of crap. Then starts making some concoction to get the stain out. Which honestly I feel like would stain the dress even more. But I don't even know. Um, and as she walks in. He, he hangs up the phone and she's like, what was that about? Like, just bold as hell. Um, and then, like, she's mixing the concoction and then um, the lady's like, really? It's not necessary. And then Jessica's like, I'm a frugal Yankee. Just humor me. And they're all laughing. Like, honestly, she's, like, really fun to hang out with, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> the piano player who is 
mounting the Broadway play, I just realized he's dressed as Scrooge. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then, like, in the next scene, he wa- they ask him to play the piano. And there is a guy dressed up, like, straight up as Donald Duck. Like, a really good, like, Disney quality, like, you'd see at Disneyland. Donald freaking Duck. So good. Okay, so the party went on all night. And the next scene is that a bunch of people sleeping in the living room of this gorgeous mansion. It's, like, very elegantly decorated. The butler's going around collecting ashes from the ashtrays. And there is the Tweedledee slash egg person laying awkwardly because of his costume is so big. He's on the couch. And then there's, like, this stereotypical cartoon, like, snoring with its, like, I can't even do it. Um, it's like snore and then it's like um uh so yeah, that's happening. And Jessica's running. I don't know fucking why. She's at a she's like she brought a sweatshirt. <laughs> like what person in their right mind, is on vacation on a book tour they never thought they would be on and gets invited to the publisher's beautiful mansion, has a great night with all these colorful people, wakes up and is like, yes, I need a jog. Alright, 28 minutes and 55 seconds in, we have a murder! Um... Jessica's out on her run. She runs into the captain's wife, driving back in the same outfit she wore last night, um, looking for her husband, the captain, and you hear this insane scream. And they they run over, and it's Grady's girlfriend, I think, Kitty, And she's screaming hysterically, and there is a body floating in the pool. We have our first clues here. Um, The person floating in the pool is the captain, the lady who is running with Jessica. That is her husband. Um, You notice on the pool side of the pool, there is blood and a rifle. And he is floating in the middle of the pool, face down. They then reveal that um, the captain, his face was blown off. As the crass police officer says, his face was blown off by a 12-gauge. The deputy is played by Hap Lawrence, who is actually not good-looking as the deputy, but the picture, I'm watching this on Amazon Prime, And you know how they have those x-rays where it shows, like, the actors and who they're playing? Um, his picture of him is much older. He's actually not that, not that bad looking. So, we learn his face is shot off. The scene jumps into meeting the, um, the chief, um police officer 
and it's played by Ned Beatty. Okay, so typical TV murder mystery style. Uh, the the uh, detective is in the room, gathered everyone around, talking out certain things, um, getting the facts straight. The doctor is um, played by Raymond Saint Jacques. He doesn't have a name; he's just called Doctor. Um, I actually like his character. Um, very like dignified. It's like it's almost parallel, like reminiscent of like Bill Cosby as a doctor, like but like before, like not a horrible person. Bill Cosby as a doctor, like you know what I mean. Um, very like eloquent, put together. Okay, so they're all in talking about what happened the night before the wife is like okay you guys clearly think I'm guilty but I blacked out I have no idea what happened last night um clearly like if she had blacked out and then killed her husband and then like drove off or whatever like she would definitely have blood on her because she's wearing the same outfit as last night if she was blackout drunk and did all that, she would be a mess. There's no way that she would have been coherent enough to clean herself off. I feel like there would have been, like, normally if you shoot someone like that, there may not be blood sweater, if, depending on how far away you are. But also, like, because at the crime scene, there was blood all over near where the rifle was, so she would have had blood all over her, honestly. So then, the detective sees Jessica outside the window, pacing back and forth, looking at stuff. He comes outside, says he read her book, and then said, didn't say, and then he's like, but I didn't say I liked it. And then he's like, then immediately turns around and asks her opinion on the freaking murder. And this is the first instance of where People are coming here to solve crimes, and it's what starts this whole thing, and I love it. Though, he is basing his knowledge kind of strictly on her book, but also, like, he immediately says that he knows that she knows people. She knows how people act, how they work, their inner workings, which means he knows people. <laughs> so he knows that she knows people. It's weird. Oh my goodness, I just watched the next part. Jessica is like... She showed him that... she They talked about the private eye being there. And Jessica, freaking back at it again with being a boss, said... The detective had to have soft-soled shoes. The body in the water of the captain... Um, the captain, ha the body in the water had soft-soled shoes, but the captain was wearing hard-soled patent leather, like, shiny-ass, perfect shoes during the party. And then, boom, it's revealed that the body in the water was not the captain, because his face was blown off, they couldn't tell, and he was wearing the Sherlock Holmes costume. Enter the captain, walks in, 
real cool, coat on his shoulders, looking boss as hell. He was not killed. So the captain is alive, and somehow, from outside, the wife might have heard. She ran outside, saw her cheating husband was alive, was so happy, probably because that means she's not implicated in murder. Um, and, you know, nostalgia. She runs to him crying, hugs him, holds him. Then, well, she's clearly in love with him and mad at him because she's in love with him and he keeps cheating. So she steps back and slaps him, which he's not surprised at all. He's not offended at all, either. Because he knows he deserves it. Um, and then we find out that he hired the private investigator. As they're talking, they find out that the captain admits to going out with that young lady, not Ashley, but the other blonde one. They go to a local inn, but before he leaves, he puts his costume in the closet and then leaves. Which I find really weird in general because, like, again, not his house. But it seems like he's there often because he was skeet shooting and he's, like, really casual there. So, like, maybe he does have a habit of putting coats in the front coat closet. But honestly, it was a wreck there. I would have just... And, like, he was leaving with a hot girl. Like, I would have just taken off the costume, dropped it on the couch or something, and left. Like, the fact that he put it away is very meticulous. But he is very meticulous, like, dress-wise. Like, he, he dresses very well. He's very clean, so maybe that's his style. Brady and Kitty leave together, and... Preston calls a limo for Jessica to leave to go back to Cabot Cove. Jessica is very, like, I don't know. She keeps looking back kind of where I think the pool area is. And Preston sees her off, but and she makes a comment about how, like, this is clearly the first murder she's ever seen. So she makes a comment about how riding murder is totally different than experiencing a real murder. But then she almost kind of, like, says... It's almost like... It, her tone is almost like... But then it kind of is. Like, there are similarity, similarities I think she's discovered. As they're leaving the estate, the detective flags them down. And he... Jessica sees him. Obviously, maybe. He gets in the car on the side Jessica was sitting. So, either one, she didn't have her seatbelt on. Or two, like, that's just an error. I'm not sure. But she could have easily seen him. Because she did, like, when he said stop the car. She could have slid over. Because he stopped the car. And immediately she's like, what do you need help with? So, who knows? The detective calls her out on her bullshit when he says, what's the matter? And somehow he saw her face when she was talking to Preston when she was leaving. 
Like, I don't know how, because he came from the outside. I don't know. He could be everywhere. Who knows? Um, maybe he, like, walked around by the time the car was leaving. I don't know. But he knows that she's feeling uncomfortable about something. I love how Jessica isn't nosy, like, in this particular portion of the show. Like, she had no intention of getting involved in a murder. Like, she isn't, like, some cocky, like, I write about murders so I know about murders, and therefore I can solve this murder, I'm better than the police sort of thing. Like, she genuinely, like, she knows what she, like, she sees things and she has answers, but she doesn't want to get involved. And he's like, what's wrong? And she's like, this is none of my business. And he's like, I'm making it your business. <laughs> so essentially, um, a chief detective who... I don't know, like, it's a weird dynamic because... He can clearly read Jessica. Which alludes to the fact that he can read other people. But it doesn't seem like he can. Maybe by reading her book, he realized that she has that gift. And he's using that um, to his advantage. Her, uh, her uncomfortable feeling is a really good hunch that freaking blows the case wide open. Like, I don't know why she didn't want to say this, but... She says that because the person killed was in the Sherlock Holmes costume, the person doing the killing could have thought it was the captain. So there are two sets of victims, um, two sets of um, suspects. Those who knew it was the private investigator and tried to kill him, or those who thought it was captain and tried to kill him. So the detective's like, damn. The next scene... Um, Jessica is in her hotel. Which... I don't know why she's in a hotel room. I guess she got a hotel room. And then went to the train station. And was leaving. But then... She stayed the weekend with Preston. And then she went back to a hotel room. To get her stuff to go home. It doesn't make any sense. Because I'm pretty sure that is not... Um... Grady's. That's not Grady's apartment. So, somehow she must have still had the apartment she was staying in. I'm not sure. Maybe she was... No, she, I don't know. It doesn't make sense. Um, maybe she left all of her... No, that doesn't make sense either. Because Preston picked her straight up from the train station with all of her bags and took her straight to his estate. So why on earth would she be back at a hotel packing her stuff when all of her stuff was brought to Preston's? Oh well. Um, Brady is trying to convince Jessica to solve the murder and she's like, no thanks, I'm good. Um, and Grady was like, you should stay. And Jessica's like, you know... 
I only like you and Kitty. I hate everyone else in the city. I hate the city. And then he calls her out on, like, liking Preston. And she's, like, pissed. She doesn't say a word about it. Um, but in the apartment to your um, hotel, there is a gorgeous painting. Um, it's two people in bed. And it's, like, a pale blue and white. Um, that's pretty nice. She gets mad for, like, two seconds. Turns around. And then freaking calls him out on calling her out. And then says he shouldn't be trying to fix her up. <laughs> and then he's like, oh, that's too bad you didn't, like... You didn't hit it off. And she's like, oh no, we hit it off too well. And I'm pretty much just quoting the show at this point. Um... But I think it's funny, and it's also, like, there are certain poignant, like, points that are very, like, um, that are emphasized for specific reasons, and I think watching the show more than once is very, like, I've seen this episode before, and I, I know the next, I've seen the next episode, and I know what happens, and there are very poignant moments that are established that, um, that play into how this ends and it's not for it's not necessarily foreshadowing it's more like setting up these feelings and events that kind of play poetically within the whole story all right at the end of this episode Jessica finally gets to the train <laughs> for the second time and can you guess what happens? Um, Kitty runs, runs to her. Of course, the train conductor is helping her get on the train again because she's, like, really into her. And Kitty comes running, freaking out, and tells Jessica that Grady, her nephew, has been arrested on suspicion of murder. It's interesting how, um, well, this whole time I've been explaining the whole show, uh, so I might as well continue, because there's not a lot of murder bits in this episode. Um, Jessica and Preston, Preston gets the uh, high-powered lawyer, gets Grady out of prison after being questioned, and Ashley... It's also questioned, and they think either Grady or Ashley is the murderer because they were selling secrets of the captains or whatever. But Ashley reveals to Jessica that she has an alibi. Her and Jessica were cleaning her dress at the time of the murder, which apparently was 11.15. Um, apparently someone heard a, shock, a noise. 11.15 and they thought it was a sonic boom turns out there weren't any planes going over they checked over the sky so it had to have been a gunshot um so Ashley seems to be in the clear and now all fingers are pointed to Grady it's weird how Ashley is like 
really suspect. I'm sure they did that on purpose to make the show seem more, I don't know, suspenseful. And it, it makes it sound like she, like, somehow manipulated something so that she had an alibi. Um, and she's, like, not sorry at all that um, she was that she has an alibi. She's kind of, like, rubbing it in Jessica's face that Jessica is her alibi. Um, which I find suspect in general. This is a pretty long episode to get through. Um, 45 minutes and some change. Um, just of exposition, essentially. Um, honestly, this is a really good episode. Um, I, this was the first episode I ever watched of Murder, She Wrote. Um, watching part one and then part two, um, together, like, part one is pretty long, and it's even longer for me because I'm watching a few minutes at a time and then, you know, talking about it, um, so it's taken me more than an hour to watch 45 minutes of a show, but... It is a very good show, and it's this episode is very good for setting up everything that happens later. And also, for a first episode, it is good. Like, really good. A lot of television shows are really, like, trying, like, pilots and stuff are trying to, like, find their footing. And a lot of shows change a lot from the first episode. But this, out the gate doesn't change much um gets better just better murders better clever things um but honestly the pacing stays i mean this is a two-part episode um story and there are only a few of those but like the way the murders happen the solving the intrigue the tons of suspects the realism all of that stays the same, and this is a very well-crafted first episode of a television show. And it is just as good as all the other episodes I've seen. It's well-crafted. Um, and I like how all the characters, there is a lot of exposition, but that's because there are a lot of suspects and characters that had to be introduced in order to make a lot of suspects after the murder happened. And honestly, you get to know the characters. And it's not just, oh, who's the suspect? Grady, who you kind of know, or these random people. And then you're like, oh, well, it's obviously not Grady, but it's probably one of these random people. But that's not the case. The case is that there are all these interesting people that were introduced and they're all given backstories, and they, a lot of them have motives. There's emotion involved in their character development. And honestly, that stays throughout the whole series. Um, there's They don't spend as much time on it. Because they only have 45 minutes to do the whole episode, where this one is two episodes long. Um, but they still have a lot of exposition and character development within a lot of the episodes. Uh, and um, 
they don't have to do it as much when she's in Cabot Cove because some of the murders happen in her hometown. Um, and those are already established characters. So those episodes don't have to introduce anyone, which is a nice break. But then there are a lot of episodes that, um, that are about totally new characters, which is refreshing also. Um, so yeah, um, if you haven't seen Murder, She Wrote, and you're considering it by listening to me talk about it, I would recommend it. Um, it's really good. My favorite episodes are the ones that take place in Cabot Cove. Um, they're, they're very unique in a very good way. And there are some characters that um, haven't been introduced yet that I love. And if you haven't seen Murder, She Wrote, you should definitely check it out. Um, in the next couple episodes that I'll be doing... Well, in the, ne- the next episode, it will be focused on the murder. Um, I pretty much just explained the whole, <laughs> the whole show this whole time and commented on it. But... Um, I think in future episodes that I do of this podcast, um, it's going to be based more about, like, around the um, the actual murder and the solving of the murder rather than describing what's happening in the story. Um, but this episode was pretty much n- only, like, a little bit of murder in it. So, um, but yeah, like, thanks for listening, and I hope you stay, I hope you stay, Wow. I hope you stay tuned to hear the next episode. Um, I'm not sure when I'll be putting that out, but it will be soon. And thanks for listening.